Welcome to the Wealth Studying Podcast. This is episode 419. Today is July 9th, 2023. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, today I got a quick episode for you. I say quick, we'll see how much I digress and maybe it gets drawn out, but I'm thinking the episode is going to be quick because I'm going to talk some numbers. And I know whenever I talk numbers, 95% of you will immediately tune out. That's okay. The 5% that stick around are the people that I really want to be having the conversation with anyways. So what are we going to talk numbers about? Well, broadly speaking, I'm going to talk about market conditions, but specifically, I'm going to talk about money market funds and how right now they're essentially very similar to dividend-paying stocks. Now, over the past few months, I've received a lot of inquiries where people have asked me, why am I not emphasizing investing in dividend-paying stocks? Some people have even said, well, hey, you know, a couple years ago, you were really high on dividend-paying stocks. You know, have you changed your entire investment strategy? You don't even talk about them anymore. All you seem to talk about is money market funds. Well, when it comes to this podcast and what I talk about, keep in mind that I only talk about what I'm doing with my own money. And over the past, you know, close to probably nine months, I have been either 90% or moving towards 90% of my portfolio into money market funds. And so thus, that's what I talk about. And is it that I don't like regular stocks or in particular, do I not like dividend paying stocks? Well, let's review why I'm in money market funds. And this is just a continuation of what I've been saying over the last nine months. I am not a gloom and doom. Economy is about to collapse and the stock market's going to fall off the rails. Right now, it's fashionable to think that there's no recessionary fears and there's a lot of fear missing out. And some people are jumping into the market thinking it's going on to all-time new record highs. Take a look at the American Association of Individual Investors and their weekly poll that they do on where people think the economy is going to be in six months. They're you know, pretty much at their highest levels that they've seen in the last 52 weeks. Now, while that may be reassuring to some people, I look at those numbers as being a contrarian indicator. One of the reasons that I've been saying for more than a year now is that we are in one of the most anticipated recessions of all time. And for that very reason, we either may not get a recession, or if we do, it could be lighter than otherwise expected because it is so expected, right? It's the theory that I've talked about that investing is like paddling a canoe. It doesn't matter about the seaworthiness of the vessel. It matters to what extent the people that are paddling are either leaning to starboard side or port side. And when everybody gets on one side of a trade... That canoe, which is normally very stable, becomes instantaneously unstable and it capsizes. So when everybody is anticipating a recession, it lessens the odds of a recession. Likewise, when no one's anticipating a recession, it's more likely that you'll receive one. In any case, my pessimism about the economy and more appropriately about the likelihood of a drawback in the stock market and a recession has had nothing to do with the underlying strength of the U.S. economy. I remain, as I have been, very cynically optimistic about the U.S. economy. Go back and read my book that was published in 2016, excuse me, was written in 2016, published in 2017, and I talked about a lot of the trends that are happening now, and the underlying theme is the strength of the North American economy as technology and the low cost of energy 
bring more and more industrialization back to the United States. Now, that trend has only been more accelerated by the supply problems that we had during COVID and now the hot war we have with Russia and the cold war we have with China. Again, I want to emphasize here, while a lot of people see gloom and doom in that, I don't. I see opportunity. I think it was last May when we were really in the heat of inflation rising because of the high cost of energy and food because of the invasion of Ukraine. I pointed out in a video, I think it was called Global Choke Points, I pointed out that the very three things that were likely to slow down growth of the global economy were going to be favorable for the United States. And this is in stark contrast to what a lot of people have been fearing when they draw the analogy to where we are right now with high inflation, with where we were in the 1970s. If you're a student of history, you'll remember back in the 1970s, we had a double-dip recession primarily caused by the Arab oil embargo. That disproportionately hit the United States. And that was because since the 1970s, production of oil and energy had been in decline. And that continued for some 30 years. But all that changed with the shale revolution and around 2008, energy production in the U.S. started to increase. This is the first time since the 1970s. And while a lot of people poo-pooed it and said, oh, it's going to just collapse, these wells are built on debt and it's never going to work, well, it did work. It worked to the extent that the United States is the largest producer of fossil fuel products and we have, if not the best price on natural gas, it's certainly among the top one or two within the world. Again, that was the premise of my book in 2016 about the low cost of energy and the development of artificial intelligence and robotics and automation. When you combine those two, the cost advantage of making products in Asia and specifically in China with cheap labor, well, that goes away. And we're seeing the benefits of that now. We're seeing the manifestation of it. So in that video that I put out, again, sometime I think it was May of 2022, and I talked about global choke points, I made the point that the three things that were going to impact the globe, and in particular were impacting Europe, were actually beneficial to the United States and broadly speaking to North America. And so to the extent that energy and food was going to be impacted by the sanctions in Russia, it wouldn't be the same effect that the Arab oil embargo had on the U.S. in the 1970s because now the United States and North America are dominant energy producers. It's the Europeans, and in particular the Germans, that are going through their 1970s moment. So the three things I talked about as far as choke points were energy, agriculture, and weapons systems. All three of those are dominant sectors for the U.S. economy. So my pessimism on the economy and the stock market of late has not had anything to do with the underlying strength of the U.S. economy. I still think that for all the flaws that the U.S. and North America has, it still remains the best house in a bad neighborhood and the tallest midget. But where my pessimism and my concern about stock prices has arisen was around the likelihood that the Federal Reserve would create a recession and that's to fight the inflationary pressures. And if you remember, going back about a year ago, there was all kinds of hysteria about the inverted yield curve. I didn't worry about that back then because 
the inverted yield curve then was very insignificant, and it takes a long time for that to play out. There's a big lag in monetary policy in how it actually affects Main Street economy. Well, today, all the people that were seemingly wetting to bed over the inverted yield curve a year ago have suddenly gotten fear of missing out, and they're all piling back into the stock market because they don't think there's any recessionary fears. But I, on the other hand, am much more concerned now than I was a year ago. Because now we do have not only an inverted yield curve, but a steeply inverted yield curve. And we also have the lag time dissipating because the yield curve's been inverted for some 14 months or so. So that's the origin of my concern. What I don't know, and why I say I can't predict the future, is I don't know to what extent the Federal Reserve will keep a stranglehold on interest rates in their monetary policy. They can change their mind overnight. They frequently do. And as I've also stated, I think that it's highly unlikely that they're going to drive a recession into next year's presidential election. So if they are going to force a recession, then they need to do it fairly quickly because they want it to be over by the spring of 2024, certainly by early summer or the first half of 2024, because they want to get that away well in front of the election. Now, why do I think the Federal Reserve is so hell-bent on creating a recession? Well, it's what they need to do to get inflation under control. Forget the numbers you see with the headlines about inflation. Core inflation, what really matters, is still running at about 5%. And one of the major drivers of that is wage inflation. As you heard me say throughout last year, again, when a lot of people were so worried and blaming the Federal Reserve for hyperinflation, which incidentally never came, right, because we saw that the price of copper peaked in March of 2022. So we knew by that that we weren't in a hyperinflationary environment. And while I'm not taking all the responsibility of inflation away from the Federal Reserve, listen, they definitely believe, uh, deserve their fair share. The point is that most of the inflation that we saw early on last year was a direct result of the sanctions that were put on Russian export of energy and then the corollary spinoff of that of the restrictions that happened to the wheat and grain and food things that were coming, foodstuffs that were coming either out of Russia or out of Ukraine. That's what drove up energy and food prices for the first six months of 2022. It had very little to do with Fed policy. I said back then, like I'm saying now, the Federal Reserve can't pump any more oil, nor can they grow any corn or wheat. And so even though their higher interest rates have, I believe, contributed to bringing down inflation, much of the big headline inflation, the cost of food and energy, had nothing to do with Federal Reserve raising interest rates. It had to do with sanctions on Russian energy really not being that effective. Russia is exporting about as much energy as it ever did. It just shifted. Instead of primarily going to Europe, it's now primarily going to Asia. Markets adjust, people adapt. And so while that 9% inflation has come out of the market, we're still saddled with a good 5% or more of core inflation. And the Federal Reserve can do very little to bring that inflation down unless they squash demand by creating unemployment. That's why I say that my concern is about a recession that it's induced by the Federal Reserve. 
I don't think they will create a recession because they're evil or because they're stupid. I think they'll create a recession because that's the tool that they use and that they've always used to fight inflation. And since core inflation is not going down beyond wage inflation because of things like higher material and higher manufacturing costs, those are not going away. And this is something I didn't cover in my book because I didn't anticipate a Cold War like we have with China. But, you know, you're hearing a lot of people talk about decoupling or deglobalization. Well, I don't use that term because I don't think we're decoupling. But what I do think, because both economies are too intertwined to separate, sort of like the old mad theory of nuclear war. It was mutually assured destruction, so no one would ever use a nuclear weapon. Well, now in terms of the economy, the U.S. or China could both start some type of a trade war, but at the same time, it wouldn't insulate anybody from the effects. It would be mutually assured destruction of everybody's economy, and so for that reason, it probably won't happen to that extent. But we've definitely shifted as a nation away from the trade policies that we've had for the last 30 years. And that trend is not to deglobalization, but to peak globalization. I think globalization peaked prior to the pandemic. And now we not only have the effects of the lower energy costs and the automation making manufacturing more competitive and easier to do in North America, but along with that, you have the national security interests, which are pushing that trend along and acting as a tailwind. So it's driving it even faster than I anticipated seven years ago. But those effects of moving away from peak globalization are causing the cost of all products to increase. Now, again, this is an inflationary trend that's not the fault of the Federal Reserve, and they can't fix it with their normal monetary policy. Just like they can't pump any oil and just like they can't grow any corn or wheat, they also can't manufacture any products. But I also believe that that won't stop them from keeping rates high because that's one of the only tools that they have. All they have to use is monetary policy, and so they're going to use it to counteract core inflation, even to the extent that not all that core inflation is a direct result of monetary policy. Ha, but I digress. Let, let's get to the math. A couple years ago, I talked about the benefits of dividend-paying stocks. Now, the big reason you want to be in dividend-paying stocks is because during downtrends, the dividend generally remains constant. And so, particularly if you're an older person or you're, if you're someone that has a very large investment portfolio that you're generating cash flow from for income, then what's important to you is that steady rate of income that you can use for your living expenses. And since dividends generally continue to pay out during downtrends, if we would have a downtrend in the stock market, you wouldn't panic and sell all of your stocks because even though you know the price of your Procter & Gamble or Johnson & Johnson or Coca-Cola or you know whatever dividend-paying stock you have, even though maybe the price of that has come down, it's still paying you the quarterly income that you need to live off of. And that's all you care about. And you know that whatever the road bump that's in the way of the economy, it's going to go away. It's not going to be a financial collapse. And the stock market will eventually get back moving in the right direction. And eventually your portfolio will go back up to the price that it used to be. And the market will go on to hit all-time new record highs. And along the way, you still will have been receiving the, the income that you wanted. 
Number one, if you're in that income environment, that's the reason that you would want to own dividend-paying stocks. Now, if you're not in that scenario, you would still potentially want to own dividend-paying stocks for the very fact of all the other people that do want to own it for the stability. That means that in a downturn, those dividend-paying stocks are not going to go down as much as the general market because they're not going to get sold off as much as a non-dividend-paying stock would. For that very reason, right? The dividend-paying stocks are going to continue to pay that income, and so people will be hesitant to sell them. It's a positive feedback system. Now, the one exception to that, and the reason I do believe in active trading, and I don't believe in sitting through major downturns in the stock market, is that if you think there's a high likelihood or high degree, a high probability of a major downturn, not a, not a correction, but a major 2008 financial crisis or dot-com bubble or potentially what I do think we could still come into, which is a pullback of the market to get rid of the excesses that we saw during the pandemic. If you think that's a concern, then my opinion is why would you stay in dividend-paying stocks? Because historically, even though they go down less than the general market, during a major downturn, they still have a price collapse. And we're talking, you know, in the neighborhood of well more than 30 or more percent. So my theory is it's better to move to cash in those situations than it is to sit through that much of a downturn. Because if you're right, you can always go in and buy those high quality stocks at a better price. And if you're wrong, well, then temporarily you're giving up the dividend and you're also giving up any uptrend in the market. But that's temporary. Right? You're not going to stay out of the market forever. Right? That's the mistake people make. I even to today talk to people that sold out of the market at the bottom in 2008 and they never got back in. When I talk about pulling out of the market, if you're concerned about a major pullback, it's if you're concerned about a major pullback, not every little up and down of the market. And so to the extent that you're missing out on a dividend or that you're missing out on market upside, it's a fairly temporary state. Maybe it's three months, maybe it's six months, maybe it's, who knows, 12 or 18 months. But it's not the rest of your life. And while you may miss some intermittent uptrend, you got to remember that the market pretty much resets a new phase every three months. And this is why I am so optimistic, and even if it's cynically optimistic, about investing in stocks and investing in the future of America and North America, because literally... Every three months, the market presents you with some type of investment opportunity. Because the U.S. markets are so diverse now, and because discount brokers charge no transaction fees, well, that leaves you a cornucopia of investment opportunities. If you want to invest in real estate, well, there's REITs for that. If you want to invest in healthcare stocks, well, there's dozens of markets that do that. If you want to invest in industrials or energy or high-tech or automation, or if you want to invest in demographic trends, I mean, there's a million ways that you can invest in the future of the economy, even if you think that it's going down. So I remain highly optimistic about the stock market long term. But short term, until I get a better feel, number one, on where Fed policy is going to go, and number two, I continue to be concerned about corporate profits. Corporate profits peaked in 2021. And while the market fluctuation doesn't matter day to day, because it's day to day, it's driven on fear and greed. 
Over the long term, though, reason sets in, and what ultimately matters is corporate profits. And right now, with that uncertainty of where corporate profits are going to bottom, and with the very high valuation in the stock market, I would prefer to remain out rather than in. Okay, this is a long way of getting to why I see money market funds as dividend-paying stocks, but I'm not even going to go there yet. Let me digress a little further. And I want to emphasize that three-month turnover in stocks. And again, this is why I do believe in active trading, not day trading, but actively managing your portfolio. Let's go back to the beginning of the year. What was the big trend for the first either couple months of this year or leading in from you know the end of last year into the beginning of this year? That three-month trend was all about investing in emerging markets and specifically in China. Well, yeah, that lasted for about six to eight weeks and it's petered out. It's petered out significantly. Look at where Chinese and emerging market stocks are right now. You take pretty much India out of the equation and that whole narrative about China and emerging markets has totally faded away. And it's faded away so much, in fact, that it's probably a good time to get back into it, but that's another story. In any case, that was the big trend at the beginning of the year. And then what happened? We got into March and oh my goodness, three banks failed. And the banks that failed were pretty much focused on cryptocurrency and or tech startups, right? That was real. That was the real underlying story. But that didn't limit the narrative because the narrative was all about how we were going to get contagion and the banking system, especially the regional banks, was just going to fall apart. And you had about six to eight weeks of sheer panic, which really hit the mid and the small cap stocks where those regional banks are focused. But where are we at today? A lot of the increase that we've seen over the last two or three weeks in the small caps and in the mid caps has simply been a result of people moving back into those regional banks and the spinoffs from those regional banks. Because guess what? There wasn't a contagion. It didn't fail. The system is just as fine today as it ever was. And when that banking panic started to wear off, well, what was the next big thing? Oh my goodness, artificial intelligence, chat GPT was going to drive high tech to all-time new record highs. And you saw huge amounts of irrational exuberance pile into a handful of stocks that were either directly or semi-directly related to artificial intelligence. And, you know, here we are with that trend starting to fade and maybe peter out. So again, I want to reiterate, every three months or so, you're going to see these shifts in the market. And it's because large institutional investors have to stay invested. Go look at a prospectus from most, if not all, mutual funds. In the little print at the bottom, say something like, this fund will stay 95% invested in, you know, whatever index or whatever style of investing they're in. That means that even if they are convinced we're headed into the worst depression of all history, they're not going to sell. They've got a hold. And since they have to be invested in the market, they're going to shift into what they believe is going to get impacted the least. Again, that's an argument for why things like dividend-paying stocks or stocks that are known as you know defensive sector type, type stocks tend to do well, or at least do better, in a declining stock market environment. Right? These are the stocks like Pepsi and Coke and utility stocks and stocks that are involved in healthcare. These are stocks that are generally insulated from a recession, 
Now, it doesn't mean that the stocks don't go down. It means they just don't go down as much. But it gets back to my thesis about why you would want to move into cash is that if you're not an institutional investor, if you're just an individual investor, then you don't have to sit through a downtrend. You can choose to get out, stay in the safety of cash, and move back in to pick up that next three-month trend whenever you believe the risk-reward is there. Again, I'll reiterate, I don't think we're there now. This comes back to some of the math. Look at where the most optimistic valuation is on the S&P 500. And this is based on the most optimistic look at where corporate profits are going to come in at. And the S&P 500 is trading at a multiple of about 20 times. That means that every dollar in aggregate that the S&P 500 earns, the stock prices are 20 times higher. So for every dollar of earnings, you're paying $20 to invest in it. If you take the reciprocal of that, so 1 divided by 20 is 0.05. That's your interest rate. I want to hammer this fact over and over again. You've heard me talk about the reciprocal of the valuation many, many times over the years, but it's more important now than it's ever been. Because right now, in a money market fund, you can receive pretty much 5% interest. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less. It depends on how much money you have and what degree of safety you want to go into with money market funds. Government-backed U.S. Treasury money market funds right now are paying slightly less than 5%. While prime rate money market funds, these are ones that are based on corporate and commercial debt, they have more risk, but they're paying a higher interest rate, and so you can get you know slightly better than 5%. But let's just call it 5%. Do you see how that number matches? You could be invested in the S&P 500 and receive 5%, or you could be invested in a money market fund, which for all intents and purposes is risk-free and gives you 100% access to your money, so you have no liquidity drawbacks, you have no risk to your principal, and you're receiving exactly as much money as you would be for taking a risk by being in the stock market. Now, of course, if you're in the market, you could benefit from upside of the market. So the downside risk to being in money market funds right now is that you could give up potential gains if the market goes up. But the huge benefit, the money market funds, that's the case now that wasn't the case a year ago or two years ago or really any time in the last 15 years, is that it's paying as much as being in the stock market. So there's essentially no risk premium for taking the risk of being in the stock market because while you can't lose your money in money market funds, you can lose a lot of your principal if the stock market does pull back. Now, that's an if, but for me and my money right now, it's an if that I don't want to take. And think about that. 5%. You're earning 5% by being in a money market that's 100% liquid, meaning you can get your money instantaneously, and there's virtually no chance of losing the principal. Well, compare that to a big, high-quality, dividend-paying stock. The only dividend-paying stocks on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which are paying 5% or more, are pretty much five stocks that you don't want to own. Ask me how I know, by the way. I own Verizon. I've held Verizon over the years primarily for the fact that it does pay a fantastic dividend, and I know that it's you know, very unlikely that the company is going to go out of business. But you know what? That 7% percent 
dividend that I'm receiving for being in Verizon, it pales in comparison to the 35 or more percent that I've lost in my principal. So again, that's the point I'm trying to make. Dividend-paying stocks come with risk. And right now, of the 30 or so stocks on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, many of which are considered those high-quality high dividend-paying stocks, only a handful are paying more than you can get by being in a money market fund. And those, again, in my opinion, are stocks you don't want to own. Look at some of the big high-quality dividend-paying stocks that people consider to be very defensive and recession-proof. J&J is paying less than 3% dividend. Home Depot, not much more than 2.5%. Procter & Gamble, right around 2.5%. McDonald's, about 2%. And those companies I just mentioned, I think they have horrible, way-too-high valuations. To get those measly, subpar dividends when compared to the safety of a money market fund, those companies I just mentioned, you're going to pay a fortune to own them. McDonald's has a forward price per earnings ratio optimistically at at least 24 times. Procter & Gamble, a little better, it's about 23 times. Home Depot's close to 20. J&J is much more reasonable, it's under 15, but you've got to remember they've had a lot of legal and lawsuit issues which maybe haven't been totally resolved and they're doing spinouts and you know there's a lot of reorganization and risk factor with J&J. I don't remember if I mentioned Coca-Cola as far as dividend but their dividend is only about three percent and again for the privilege of owning that based on the best of estimates on optimistic profitability you're still going to pay over 21 times for that. Well for me and my money as much as I love dividend-paying stocks, when I look at the risk-reward potential and I look at this market and I look the way it could go if the Federal Reserve continues to have a tight monetary policy and if something heats up with the war in Ukraine and if all this jawboning of diplomacy doesn't work out with China and that Cold War persists, then I think there's still much more downside to the stock market than up. And while I'm not opposed to taking risk and you know, throughout my investing career, I'm usually 90% or more in the market. Right now, with dividend-paying stocks paling in comparison to what you can get for a safe, liquid, 5% money market fund, well, again, for me and my money, I would rather be in the money market fund. And so it's not that I suddenly don't like dividend-paying stocks. It's that the valuation equation has changed. And I believe from a risk-reward perspective, parking your money in money market funds is a pretty darn good idea. Hey, agree or disagree? Remember, it's only my opinion. That's what I'm doing with my money. What you do with yours, I really don't care. But what I do care about is what I'm going to say on the next episode of the Wellsteading Podcast. So until then, as always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns.